merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad al-Muhammad Brothers, sisters, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So as it was uh, just mentioned, we're at the ninth lesson in the series of ten lessons that have to do with general prophethood. And uh, not to spend too much time on the topic of general prophethood, but in case I know we have some uh, newcomers, people joining the series, so just maybe a 30-second uh, reminder of the difference between general prophethood and specific prophethood. We said that there are a number of uh, issues, articles, questions, topics that are usually discussed, that are usually discussed about all prophets. So this is what we refer to as general prophethood. So whatever is discussed as general prophethood is what usually applies to all prophets. Um, and in Arabic they call it Nubu'al-Am. And then when we go into the specific prophethood of a prophet, so let's say we want to discuss things that are specifically related to Prophet Adam or Prophet Yusuf, or most relevant to us, Prophet Muhammad If it's something specifically related to the history of that Prophet, to the infallibility of that Prophet, to the miracles of that Prophet, then it's going to be discussed under the heading of specific prophethood or Nubu'a al-Khassa. So what we're doing right now is basically giving the general principles that should apply to all prophets. And once we're done with this, then whatever we say here should apply to all prophets, including our holy prophet And then we're going to go into more detail because it's more relevant to us and this has to do with our religion. So we have to discuss his prophethood and his specific miracle, which is the holy Quran. And then with that, we establish that he is a prophet and this is his miracle and Islam and the nature of Islam or what distinguishes it from other religions and then we extend that into the discussion of the Imam which is an extension of the belief in the Holy Prophet. Um, so what have we said until now to continue with this topic of general prophethood? The first point that we try to establish is that prophethood is a logical necessity. We said based on everything we said about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and how he deals with human beings and the reason why we were created and so on and so forth. Prophethood itself becomes a logical necessity. And the link that we made here was with the capacity of human reason. We said that no matter how we spin it, human reason is going to have limitations, constraints that is that are going to make it uh, incapable, incapable or unable to reach certain conclusions that are absolutely necessary for the salvation of a human being or for the purpose for which they were created. Because of those limitations, we cannot rely on our pure reason to determine certain things. And this is, there's a gap there in the human reason versus everything that is knowledgeable, knowable, and this is where prophethood comes in. So prophethood is going to fill that gap. So that was the main point of that. So given the gap in human understanding, in human reason, we need another source of verifiable, confirmed knowledge that is safe, that we can really rely on, that goes back to the purpose of our existence. And we said this is going to be fulfilled or filled by prophethood. So this was the first topic. The second topic is given that 
then we have to look at the nature of the message, the communication, the knowledge that is, that is being transmitted. And this has to be looked at from two angles. One angle is going to be the message itself. So we spent a little bit of time speaking about how reliable is the message. So we looked at the chain of transmission, as we called it, the revelation. To what extent can we really say that if something is revealed through a prophet to human beings, then we can consider that infallible, that there are no mistakes in it, whether intentional or non-intentional. And then we looked at prophets themselves to see to what extent can we rely on what they do and what they say, and is it infallible or not. So with those two components, those are the two ingredients of what we call religion. So there's the revelation part and the person, the messenger, the person carrying that message. Those are the two components of religion. And with that, we established, first of all, that it's necessary in the first point. And now we established that it's absolutely safe and reliable to be followed. And this is the infallibility. This is the asma. Okay, until now. Then the third topic was from there. So how do we determine that someone is actually a prophet? How can we, what criteria do we have that allows us to say this is indeed a prophet or this is not a prophet? And we gave a number of different means. I think we, we mentioned three. We said three big ones, for instance, are, uh, first of all, having knowledge of the history of that person. So if you're intimately aware of someone, let's say from the moment of their birth or their childhood all the way until they became an adult and 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 then they claim to be a prophet well if you look at their past and you see things in their past that would contradict being someone who can receive that kind of message then you have an issue but if everything you look at looks like all the indications were almost already there and there's nothing that contradicts that type of person carrying that type of message from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and leading people and leading by example and so on and so forth, then the history of the person itself becomes one of the means, one of the tools through which we can prove the prophethood of the person. That's one means. A second one is you rely on a prior or other prophecy. So you know intimately that there is a prophecy in which you believe, you know that it's a reliable prophecy or you are intimately aware of another prophet and you believe in their prophethood and they're telling you that this specific person or these general criteria, if they were ever to apply for someone, then that someone is going to be a prophet and you can use them as a prophet, as an infallible that they are communicating from God. So first is you have intimate history yourself. You, you have knowledge of the history of the person or two, you have intimate knowledge and belief in either, either a, another prophet that you already believe in who tells you so-and-so is going to be a prophet, so you may rely on them, or intimate knowledge of the prophecy of that prophet. And these are perfectly valid means. The shortcoming in those means is that they're not accessible to everybody. And the majority of people do not have an intimate knowledge of the history of someone. Who is going to claim I am a prophet like we have today if I want to enter into this religion I do not have an intimate knowledge of the history of Prophet Muhammad so I cannot really rely on that and say I'm going to believe in his prophethood solely based on his history I may go back to the books of history I may do my study I, I'm gonna find contradictory information and 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 
If through that means alone I'm able to establish his prophethood, great. But that's going to be very difficult for the majority of people. That's one. Two, prior belief in another prophet, again, may have been the case a long time ago when people were living with other prophets or they were rabbis and monks and who were intimately aware of a lot of the scriptures and they could apply them easily to another person who claims prophethood and distinguish clearly between someone who is making a false claim and someone who is truthful in their claim about prophethood. So what's left? This is where we open the door to miracles. And we spent a couple of lessons speaking about the nature of a miracle and then what it means, why it's necessary, where does it count and where does it not count, and the difference between a miracle and what we refer to as a karama, these graces and bounties and that we see things breaking away from the natural order of things, but they're not being made by people who claim to be prophets. And so this is where you see that this is not to establish the validity of prophethood. It may happen, and it's an indication that there's an entire aspect of the world, of the universe, that's outside of our knowledge, that works in these mysterious supernatural ways through divine graces and bounties. Let's call them that, al-karamat, for the saints, al-awliya. But these people are not claiming, for instance, to be prophets. And we talked also about the opposite end, which people making false claims to be prophets and coming up with things that seem as though they are breaking away with the natural order of things, as though these are really miracles, when in reality they're not. And we said that God will, will not allow these to continue because it may create misguidance for people and that becomes unfair. Okay, so any issues, questions around that, go back to those lessons where we discussed the eight first lessons. The conclusion from all of this is that we have established until now that, you know, to use a rational, logical language, it's not, I don't want to say it's an, uh, a necessity and obligation upon God, that's not how I'm saying it, but it becomes necessary based on everything that we have said until now about the purpose of the creation of human beings, the reason of our existence, the capacities that we have and the capacities that we don't have, we have to conclude that prophethood is a necessity. But which prophethood is a necessity? In what sense is it a necessity? So the real question here, the point of this lesson, and it's, a, it's kind of a, an awkward lesson, it's called the characteristics of prophets. So this is very quickly between two brackets and we go back. And it's kind of like a mishmash of a number of different sub-themes and subtopics that are lumped together very creatively by the author. It works. It's a very good logical sequence. Um, so here where he's trying to get at is, does this, everything that we have said until now, does it necessarily lead us to say, therefore we must have many prophets and many codes of law that we call religions or not? And until now, based on everything that we have said, absolutely not. All we need until now is to show that prophethood occurred, that there was a revelation communicated to human beings to fill the gap, and it's a safe, reliable communication, teaching, instruction. That's all we can say. From there, can we say that we have to have more than one prophet? We have to have more than one code of law? Not yet. We haven't established that yet. So this is going to be the next phase, the next step in our logical reasoning. So let's look at what I called an ideal scenario. If we could imagine humanity as being one consistent group of people, 
that when we look at a point in time or a point in space, we don't see a lot of variance between one group and another. So we see human beings, generally speaking, living in the same manner over, let's say, 10,000 years. And we see that they're actually able to easily communicate with, it, with each other. And we can imagine that once something is communicated to them as though it is a revelation, then that revelation is going to remain intact without distortions, without fabrications, without innovations in that communication from God, uh, a revelation. If you could imagine a scenario like that, then it may logically, it may logically allow us to say, and so based on all of this, we only need really one prophet who is sent with one message, with one set of instructions. He lives for long enough to communicate that and put it into application in the correct way. And that this is going to be valid for all of humanity, for every space and every time. And that no one is going to come and distort that or play around with it. It's going to be relevant, reliable, applicable for everybody. That's the ideal situation. The reality, however, the manner in which human beings live, when we look at them, and this is not just someone coming at it from a religious perspective, even if we look at it from, let's say, the point of view of a historian, or someone who's an expert in cultural studies, someone who looks at human societies, human civilizations, that's the reason why they're going to lump them in those categories of different civilizations, or you know, talk about them as have, ha having happened in different centuries. Okay, so we're going to talk about that in a second. So all of that to say, if we were in an ideal situation, if the real world matched that type of ideal situation, it may have allowed us, and even that is not entirely true, it may have at least allowed us to say, really all we need is one revelation from one person who puts it in place and it's applicable to everyone and end of story. Okay, so now let's actually look at the reality of the manner in which human beings live, which will lead us to conclude that the multiplicity of prophets and prophethoods and religions and codes of law is actually the more logical conclusion that we should reach and we should adopt. If we look, and these are just, you know, four quick points. We could add a lot of other ones to them, but these are the ones in the book, so I'm relying on them. The first one is, if we look at the lifespan of a human being. Human beings have a very limited lifespan. We live 50 years, 60 years, 80 years, 200 years, but it's limited in time. And in that time, what you're going to be exposed to and what you can apply in your life is going to be limited. Especially if you look at, at the level of human history, then you're going to see how limited it is. How much you're going to lack, how much is going to be inaccessible to you because of that limitation in your temporal existence. And we have to add to that, that this also applies to the prophets. So for a prophet to communicate a message from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he's also constrained in time. So if a prophet is a prophet communicating a message for 10 years or 20 years, then that is the lifespan of that communication. And that's a lifespan, that's the time he has to put it into application which may not always be enough to put it in full, perfect application, especially given, and we talked a lot about that, the factors of resistance to the teachings, right? This is 
going against, in a lot of cases, going against social trends, going against what the majority wants, going against what the elites and those who are in power want. So it takes a long time. And even when it's put in place, oftentimes it's put in place in an imperfect manner. Not because there's a lack in the Prophet, because of all the limitations and all the resistance and the majority of people are still not accepting that message and that set of teachings. So that's the first limitation. A second limitation is what we refer to here as the variance in humanity. And I mean, we could spend entire volumes are, are written about this, but this is basically this is the entire history of human civilization. If you look at the manner in which human beings lived 10,000 years ago and the manner in which they live today, these are fundamentally, intrinsically very different manners of living and thinking and interpreting the world. And this goes from the economic system to the political system to the manner in which we dress to what we consider culture to language. Look at the manner in which languages were written 10,000 years ago as opposed to today. You know, they went from cuneiform uh, writing as though it's, it's made with nails or in, in mud and in clay to the hieroglyphs that we find in Egypt to letters. And this was a huge transition. Writing in letters and words and sentences very different than writing in pictograms and images that, you know, carry their own uh, concepts and you amalgamate concepts together to create other meanings. In any case, like every aspect of humanity at the individual level and at the collective level, you see that there are very big variances. And generally speaking, and this, as we said, applies from language and politics to economics to just the manner in which you interpret the world, your understanding of the laws of nature, so on and so forth. And the general rule, I don't want to say it's universal and absolute, but the general rule is that it's always moving towards more complexity, always moving towards more nuance, more maturity, more subtlety. And the reason for this is what's specific to human beings. We are able to to think conceptually and we're able to pass that knowledge on to the next generation, which we do not find in any other creature that we know of. And this is the difference. No matter how much intelligence you find elsewhere, when a generation of that species happens to exist, they must start from scratch. Whereas we build on what has been put in place before us. So we're saving a lot of time, we're learning from their mistakes, and that's how humanity evolves, whereas monkeys today are doing the exact same thing as they were doing 10,000 years ago. They have not been able to build a civilization. This is the reason why human beings can build on. There's a, an inherited intellectual heritage that allows you to keep building on, which means there's kind of an arrow in time. It's always moving towards something. And usually it's moving towards more accuracy, more precision, more exploration, more discovery, more maturity, and so on and so forth. Doesn't necessarily mean that it's always good. That, that's not what we're saying. But there's a complexification in life. Technology is absolutely different. The state of mind of the collective world is very different than it was, let's say, 10,000 years ago. So long story short, if you look at human beings, we cannot say that they're in a static condition where nothing is changing, where nothing is evolving, and what may apply one place may not apply, may apply as is elsewhere, or what applies in a specific time will apply at another time. There is enough variance to justify also variance in the teachings being given. That's the, the conclusion here. 
The third point is, very quickly, the means of communication. Today it may not seem, intuitively we know that we can very easily communicate something from one side of the world to the other in, in a second or less. But if you go back even not that long ago, it took a very long time even for a little bit, a small amount of information to be disseminated. And then what guarantees that it's actually being disseminated in the right way, or that it's full, not partial, and so on and so forth. So now this is going to be, you're going to see, there's a compounding here of the factors. The lifespans are short. There's a lot of variance happening. And the means of communication are very limited. So it's very difficult to be able to communicate the teachings, whatever they may be, in a full manner to everyone, in a manner that is applicable to them with all the context and everything they need, given the lifespans of people. So you're seeing that there's a compounding here when we look at the manner in which human beings live, the reality of human society. And then we add, finally, these are, let's say, all the possible rational reasons, and then we add a really big one, which is when communications happened, revelations, religions, divine teachings were communicated, distortions happened. And we know this. We know that, and if anyone who studies the writing of, let's say, the Old Testament, the New Distortion. Testament, distortion as in uh, changes to the, uh, to what was, not but I'm trying to avoid the, keep it in English. Uh, so anything that basically changes the initial message in one way or another. So either you omit, either you add, either you change. So these are all different types of distortions. So you have a prophet, you have a messenger who has communicated a message to human beings, but we know that those messages got changed. Some of them were only passed down partially. So if you don't have the other part, you don't know how it fits in. Others, things were added to them to the point where it becomes impossible to tell what is scripture and what is not. In other cases, things were removed from them because they did not suit some, some of those who were working in that world. And of course, the, the most flagrant one is when you see actual cases where they went into the scripture and they changed words or parts of them and replaced them with other ones and so on and so forth. And anyone who studies the scriptures of the world and the history about each one of them and how it came to be what it is today, you are going to encounter this very clearly. When you put all of this together, what you have is what we talked about, which is the ideal scenario where humanity is static, nothing changes, everybody's going to accept the message and keep it as is, so it may be possible to send one prophet. Well, this is, this is how far away we are from that ideal scenario, just with these four big factors. The fact that human beings live short lives, the fact that we're always changing as a species from time to time and from space to space, the fact that it was not always possible in the past to communicate a message across vast distances, and finally, the fact that there were a lot of distortions, a lot of fabrications, omissions, changes made to those scriptures. When you put all of this together, now the logical conclusion becomes actually we actually do need a lot more prophets. One prophet is not going to work here. If I sent only one prophet, given the short lifespan, given the short lifespan of the people and the prophet, we're going to have issues. 
given that it's difficult to communicate the message of that prophet to people sitting halfway across the world, it's not going to work. Given that what may be needed by humanity in 10,000 years is going to be very different from what is needed today, it's not going to work. And finally, if that prophet communicates something to humanity and then people come and change it, then that message is no longer valid and human beings are going to need another message to put them back on the path of guidance. Otherwise, once again, defeats the purpose. Okay, so with that, we have now brought back the, the discussion to why are we going from, because the logical conclusion, as we said before, is we only need one prophet with one communication and it's going to be valid and uh, relevant and applicable to all of humanity. Why do we need this evolution and this multiplicity and plurality? We need different prophets and different codes of law, different religions. Okay, so now we gave four big reasons why. So from this, as we said, the conclusion is that there is wisdom in seeing a multiplicity of what? First of all, of multiple prophets. And two, teachings, a set of teachings that is going to be applicable to humanity. What may have been easily practicable for people to actually be able to apply 5,000 years ago may not be today and the opposite. Okay, so we need a change. We need a variance in the teachings and we need a multiplicity in the prophets. So with this, we establish that it's plausible that there is no logical issue with saying that we need more than one prophet. Okay? From there we say, so how much variance actually is there? So we're saying that there is multiple, a plurality of numerous prophets and numerous codes being sent, messages. So how different are they? So in short, otherwise this would require a very lengthy, good study, a huge series. In short is, there is a lot of commonality. This is a theoretical position, because unless I'm capable of actually finding the proper scripture and the message as it was revealed to one prophet and then through him to humanity and then another, I can't really compare to see, is it 80% the same? Is it 50% the same? Is it 97% the same? I don't know. I would need a reliable source that tells me this was the scripture there, and this is a scripture here, and this was this is how much was kept, and this is how much changed. Okay? But what we do know is, and we're gonna mention a few examples from the Holy Quran next. What we do know is that in general, based on what the Holy Quran tells us, there is a lot of common, which makes perfect sense because the source is the same. And what we're trying to get humanity to do is the same. What's changing is the context, but it's not changing to the point where we're talking about a different species. We're talking about human beings living in a very different context. Okay, so for instance, when we look at the set of beliefs, generally speaking, we said this is universal to all human beings. Where do I come from? Where am I going? And what am I supposed to be doing here? Well, that set of beliefs, those instructions about beliefs are the same in all religions. If we look at, for instance, some of the rituals, so I listed here, for instance, that there is prayer, that there is acts of charity. They've been prescribed in every religion. What may change is the extent of it, the degree of it, the amount of it. Here it's 2%, here it's 5%, here it's 20%. Something changes. But the 
notion behind it remains the same, which tells us that there are common universals that are being replicated. Okay? And when we see that there is a difference between one and the other, based on everything we've said, the conclusion is that they are justified. Because humanity is evolving. Because things are different. So we do need variants. A few verses from the Qur'an to support this. So in one verse, this is Surah Al-Ma'idah, we have sent down to you the book with the truth, confirming what was before it of the book. So already we have here that the Holy Qur'an is saying that I'm confirming what was said before me in the prior scripture. I am a scripture and this is sent in truth, but I'm also confirming, the Holy Qur'an is talking, I'm confirming what was said in the prior scripture, confirming what was before me before it of the book, and as a guardian over it. So if you have an issue between the old scripture, and especially in the time of the Holy Prophet, if you have two scriptures and you're not sure, then you have to go back to the Holy Quran, because that now is the guardian over it. Okay? And that's a big topic we, we won't get into right now. So judge between them, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling the Holy Prophet, so judge between them by what Allah has sent down, and do not follow their desires against the truth that has come to you, for each of you, we have appointed a code of law and a path. And had Allah wished, he would have made you one community. So here we start to see a lot of the points that we just mentioned. No, this is part of the divine plan, that there is a plurality and that there are different codes being sent. Does it mean that it's random and each one of you can do whatever you want? No. From this verse, we know that while each of you received or may have received a different scripture, today the scripture that is the guardian over all the others is the Holy Qur'an. So go back to the Holy Qur'an. Okay? Another verse. For every nation we have appointed a rite of worship which they are to perform. So now we see that there is a common thread. They all have rites of worship. They all have masha'ab. They all have, for instance, if you go back to the verses of Prophet Ibrahim السلام, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is first establishing the rights of pilgrimage, al-hajj. You see that from his time, the hajj is becoming a right, and it's going to be repeated and practiced for millennia in this manner, and so on and so forth. Another verse, indeed religion to God is Islam. And that's a very lengthy discussion of what is meant by Islam here, in the deen and the lail, Islam. Those who were given the book did not differ except after knowledge had come to them out of envy among themselves. So that, the fact that religion to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Islam, has never been an issue of contention between even those who were sent before and who received the book or the scripture before. When did this become a problem? When they started having personal issues between each other for personal gain and personal desire. This is where the issue started to happen. This is where we see that what's referred to here as Islam is not the, in the technical sense, what we call Islam today. This is going back to the core set of beliefs that are common to all religions. True religions revealed from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So if they argue with you, say I have submitted my will to Allah and so has he who follows me. And say to those who were given the book and the uninstructed ones or the ummiyin, depending on how it's translated, have you submitted? If they have submitted, they will certainly be guided. And here is an indication, basically the Holy Prophet is saying, I'm no different than all the other prophets. I have submitted in the same manner and to the same things. Okay, so this is what we refer to as the common set of beliefs and rights. So when we come to the beliefs, we see the necessity of belief in all the prophets. 
and this is going to apply to everyone else as it is going to apply to us. I must believe that all the prophets are prophets and that they are sent from God and that they, their instructions, their teachings, their scriptures are truth. That is not an issue of contention. We have no issue in that part. Yeah, and here in all their messages as well as their teachings. So each one of their teachings is itself a truth and we believe in it. We may know some, we may not know some, but all of that is part of our belief system. That's one. And two, in our practice, so in theory, in belief, we believe in all the prophets and in all of their messages. And in practice, in the manner in which we live, we have to go back to our own prophet. And every group, every community has to do that. Who is the prophet that they were instructed to follow? That is their prophet. And whatever that prophet tells them to do, that is what they are supposed to do. I don't randomly pick and choose. If I'm with Prophet Ibrahim and Prophet Lut happens to be in the neighboring town, I can't go follow Prophet Lut unless Prophet Ibrahim tells me to go follow his code of law and his teachings. Okay? And if we go to the Holy Quran again, so here are a few verses. This is the first one. He has prescribed to you the religion which he had enjoined upon Nuh and which we have also revealed. So here, right from the beginning of the verse, the verse is telling the Holy Prophet, the religion that we have revealed to you is the same as the one that was revealed to Prophet Nuh And then it adds, so, so as there is no confusion, it's not only Nuh but he went back to Nuh because Nuh was so ancient, was so back in the past. So he went right to the beginning. And he's saying right from the time when there was a code of law that we call a religion, all parts of religion together, Sharia, and the set of beliefs and the code of law, all of it together, which started with Prophet Nuh From that time, the message has been, the common thread of the knowledge of the message has been the same. The same we have prescribed to you, the religion which we had enjoined upon Nuh and which we have also revealed to you and which we had enjoined upon Ibrahim, Musa and Isa, declaring, so what is this religion? Maintain the religion and do not be divided in it. And then it continues. And of course, the commentary is long here, so we're going past. O you who believe, and another verse, have faith in Allah and his messengers and the book that he has sent down to his messengers, so the Holy Quran, and the book which he had sent down earlier, all of them. Whoever disbelieves in Allah and his angels and his books and his messengers in the last day has certainly strayed far into loss. And this is which brings states clearly for us that part of our belief is the belief in all the prophets and in all the scriptures. We cannot say we believe in this, but we reject that, okay? As other followers of other faiths have done. The last verse here, say we have believed in Allah and in what has been sent down to us and what has been sent down to Ibrahim, Ismail, Ishaq, Yaqub and the tribes and that which Musa and Isa were given and the prophets from the Lord. We make no distinction between any of them and to him do we submit. Should anyone follow a religion other than Islam, which tells you what Islam is. So whatever you find as a common thread between all of this, that is Islam. Should anyone follow a religion other than Islam, it shall never be accepted from him and he will be among the losers in the hereafter. And the last verse here, those who disbelieve in Allah and his messengers and who seek to separate Allah from his messengers and who say we believe in some and disbelieve in some and, see, and seek to take away in between, it is they who are truly faithless and we have prepared for the faithless a humiliating punishment. So from all of this, what do we conclude? 
I just want to see, okay. But we want to conclude from all of this, and this is just a remark. We've already said the conclusions. These are concluding remarks about this topic, and then we move to the next ones that should go very quickly. Reason may reach that there is wisdom, that there is plausibility, that it makes sense that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends many prophets with many codes of law, and that there is some common and that there's some variance. All of that we can reach through reason. Okay. But we have no criteria to determine their number, to determine their timing. We can't look at human beings and say, here God should be sending a new prophet. Here he should be sending a new code of law. We can't. This is where we see the shortcoming in our thinking. This is where we have to go back to, you believe in everything you believe in, and the rest is, you can justify it after the fact. You know that it's happening for the right reason. But you can't, before the fact, say, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to send another prophet. It's not a logical conclusion in this manner. Okay? That's why we say there's no precise criteria for number, for the manner, for the timing, for the specific teachings, or any other details related to the plurality of prophets. The number of prophets. As we said, given the point that we just mentioned, obviously we cannot, through reason, reach a logical conclusion about how many prophets should there be, ought there be. Okay? Obviously. As we said, we don't even have criteria to say, here we should get a new prophet and here we shouldn't, or how they should differ. So we can't, obviously, use our mind to say how many prophets we're going to have. So we put the reason aside here. If we want to know how many prophets were sent, we have to rely either on the Holy Qur'an or we go back to the tradition, to the narrations. If we go back to the Holy Qur'an, the Holy Qur'an mentions in total 20 plus. How many exactly is difficult? Because there are a number of people who are mentioned in the Qur'an about which there is discrepancy between the commentators, whether they were all prophets or perhaps saints, but not at the level of prophethood. Okay? So we have some of that. So let's say 20 plus. Okay? Was the Qarnayn a prophet or not? Was the Al-Kifl a prophet or not? So on and so forth. Okay? These people are mentioned and this is open for discussion between the commentators. What we do know from the Qur'an is, first of all, that every nation, and the discussion then becomes what's a nation, but every nation has received a prophet. A prophet has been sent to every civilization or every nation. So the Qur'an says, certainly we raised a messenger in every nation, saying what? Saying, worship Allah and keep away from evil. That's one. Another verse says, indeed, we have sent you with the truth as a bearer of good news and as a warner, and there is not a nation, but a warner has passed in it. Which is another reference to having prophets and messengers sent to humanity. The exact number, as we said, we don't have an exact number. In addition to that, another issue that we have is the Qur'an itself says, it talks about certain people without naming them. So we don't know if it's actually one of the other prophets, and that's sometimes one of the interpretations, or it's someone else altogether. And you may or may not have indications in the narrations that say who this person is. Okay? Abdan min ibadina, or alladhi atainahu, and so on and so forth. You're not sure, is it one of the prophets or someone else? And yeah, as the Quran says, messengers we have recounted to you, and messengers we have not recounted to you. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the Holy Prophet in the Qur'an, there are messengers we have not told you about. Okay, so if we go back to the narrations, and I think this is pretty well known, 
We are told that 124,000 prophets have been sent to humanity, the first of them being Prophet Adam السلام, and the last of them being Prophet Muhammad وسلم, and wow. peace upon all of them and all of the Prophet Muhammad. Muhammad. This opens the door to when we continue digging into the Holy Quran and the narrations, we see that we get a lot of characteristics and traits and descriptions given to the Holy Prophets. We are told some of them are virtuous, some of them are patient, some of them, some of them. We talk, for instance, about Al-Mukhlas, which is a very high level of infallibility that Allah subhanahu wa has chosen them and protected them. So all of this, but we are there are two or three that are very important because they have more ramifications than the general traits. One of them being Rasul. Okay, and I kept the word here because before I say messagehood, I just want to say the Quran refers to talks about some prophets as being also a Rasul. And there are many, many, many theories, interpretations about what is a Rasul, what is a prophet, and what is the difference between them. A prophet is a Nabi, and a Rasul is a messenger, or an apostle, or an emissary. So if we go back to the language, the word Nabi, there are two big theories, there are others, but there are two big theories. Either we say that the the term Nabi comes from uh, Naba. So this is someone who is coming with a very important piece of information. That's a Naba. And sometimes this is extended to prophecy. Okay, but generally speaking, it's coming to a coming to you with a very important piece of information. So a Nabi is someone who comes to you with very important information, linguistically, based on the root of the word. The other way to interpret the word is to say it's a Nubu. And Nubu in Arabic is something that is of a very high rank or something that's very elevated. So these people are all of a very high status, very elevated status. Okay, so this would be the other interpretation. But a Rasul obviously has only one meaning, which is someone who is carrying a Rasala, someone who is carrying a message, a letter, a communique from one, area, one party to another. That's a Rasul. The big theories here, one of them is, we are told in one of the theories, a prophet is someone who has received revelation. A messenger is someone who has received revelation and who has also been mandated to go teach it and do something with it to people. You communicate that message to other people. There's a mandate, there's a mission. If we have someone who receives a message from Allah, a specific message to them from Allah, but that message does not tell them, and go tell people that you have received a message from Allah, and communicate that message, then one person, the one who's only receiving the revelation is a prophet, and the one who's being given the message as a mission to go instruct others is a messenger, is a rasul. That's one theory. And that theory is problematic. But keep it in mind, some people use it. The second theory is the manner of the revelation. So we are told, for instance, prophets in general, they receive the revelation either in their dreams or they might hear a sound, but they don't see anything. Whereas a messenger will see in addition to hearing, in addition to maybe seeing something in their dreams. So it's a higher level of knowledge and a higher ability to acquire and to receive knowledge. Okay? Some say that's the distinction between prophets and rasul or rasul. Okay, again, that one is also problematic, but 
another theory to keep in mind. What we do know, so that's the conclusion, what we do know for sure is that certainly, even when we go back in the Holy Quran, certainly there are many, many more prophets than there are messengers. That's one conclusion. Another very clear conclusion is that every person that the Quran has mentioned as being a messenger, it has also said that they are a prophet. Which may seem to indicate that being a messenger, the role, the rank, the level of Rasale is higher than the level of Nubuwa. But we cannot say that for a fact. It may seem to be the case, but we cannot say that is absolutely the case. We have no proof for that. Okay, based on the verses of the Quran, we may be able to, to deduce that, to infer that. Okay, that's two. And three, even within the messengers themselves, we see that there are many of them who have very different ranks. Not all messengers are of the same level. And that there are ranks within being a messenger, and then there are ranks that are even higher than being a prophet and a messenger, which is definitely the case, for instance, with the level of imamah. So when we go back to the Holy Quran, we see, for instance, that Prophet Ibrahim السلام, only reached the level of Imamah after he reached the level of Nubuwa and Rasala. So now we start seeing maybe there is a, there are ranks and there is a progression and degrees. Yeah, it's gradual. The Quran says, and when his Lord tested Ibrahim with certain words, words here are tests or challenges that Ibrahim السلام, fulfilled in the most excellent manner. So. So Ibrahim السلام, fulfilled those tests, okay? It was one test after another. Take your wife and your newborn child and put them in the desert. And then he's old enough, you have to kill him. And, and, and when he passed all of those tests, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, when he passed all those tests, he said, I am making you an imam. Mm -hmm. Prophet Ibrahim, the Quran says, he had already been a prophet a long time ago in other verses. Mm -hmm. And we are told he was also a messenger. And now he was becoming an imam. So it says that, to become an Imam, there are different tests to pass. It's a different level of test, spirituality, and knowledge that is required to be an Imam. He said, from my descendants, so Prophet Ibrahim is always praying for his descendants. He wants his descendants not just to be prophets or messengers. He wants them to be Imams. And the answer came, not yes and not no. Potentially, yes, but my pledge does not extend extend. There's a mistake here, sorry. Extend to the unjust. So if someone is unjust, that is never going to be a possibility for them. As for those who are truly just, they may be able to reach the level of Imam. That's all he received as an answer. If you read other verses of the Quran, we see that his prayer was actually answered. We made them Imams. If you read the verses before this one, we make them Imams, guiding by our command, and we reveal to them the performance of good deeds, the maintenance of prayers, the giving of charity, and they used to worship us. We made who Imams? If you read the names in the verse before that, these are the progeny, these are the descendants of Ibrahim salam. So you see it mentions Ismail, Ishaq, Yaqub, Yusuf salam. They became Imams, okay? The last one, and amongst them we appointed Imams to guide by our command when they had been patient and had conviction in our signs. So here we get the criteria for becoming an Imam. So this is not just becoming a prophet or a messenger. This is a higher level of knowledge. This is the conviction in our signs. 
and also going through tests, which the Quran says they were patient. They were able to go through the tests and pass them to reach the level of Imam. Okay, so this is a Quranic usage of the term Imam. Let me just see what's left. Okay, so these two slides. The first one, I'll try to see maybe in two minutes what we can cover and then we'll stop. But did it say because the one before that, yeah. I'm not sure. You, so you mentioned two things, but both of them you said it's problematic. Right? Yeah. So all we are saying is but there is no today, there is no clear definitive theory to say the real difference between a yeah, prophet what's the and a thing, let's say, because you that there is, there is. So that's why I said the no, conclusions, okay. right? So the conclusions, what we can say safely and firmly based on the Quran, there are a lot more prophets than messengers. One, two, every time the Quran mentions a messenger, that person also happens to be a prophet. And the, there are different ranks so between the messengers. that we're sure about. And the rest is theories. Okay, because like uh, with the different only arguments. reason that I'm yeah. asking this on purpose is because there's several people here that uh, deal with youth clubs and usually we teach the kids. And there's always this thing in the book, which is the difference between prophets and risala. Yeah. And we usually what we say is the one that uh, the Rasul has a risala. Yeah. Uh, like to say public and the prophet maybe just continuing something before or just for his family. Yeah. So do you think is is this okay to still say for the youth or should we just stay yeah, away? Yeah, absolutely. Conscious? There's no issue with it. Okay. You need to give them something to okay. rely on, but this is supposed to be a little bit more, more pushing deep. the critical thinking. Okay. For the because their ages, yes. it's okay to. So if both of these, some scholars are going to argue. Okay. And the truth is, there we don't have a scriptural definition of. What is a Nabi and what is a Rasul? Both of them, there are indications that that might be the case. So the difference in the manner in which they receive revelation. The difference in uh, do they have a mission or not. But we don't have anything that says if you're a Nabi and you're not a Rasul, you cannot have a mission. So if we have a Nabi who has a mission, then what's the difference? So that this cannot be the criteria. That's the issue. Okay, And even in the Quran, they say if generally if it's more general to be a Nabi than a Rasul, why does the Quran in Surah Maryam say, وَكَانَ رَسُولًا نَبِيًّا mm. It should have said, وَكَانَ نَبِيًّا رَسُولًا That's the, the argument, but anyways, it's open for discussion. That's why I don't want to say this is the, the answer. In the Ruayat, just to conclude the topic of Messenger, okay, Rasal. Messenger in the Ruayat, we said 124,000 prophets, in the traditions, we are also told that there are 313 messengers. Okay, so now you see the number is if we are to rely on the narrations. From those, the Quran also mentions another group, another characteristic for some prophets that when we go back to the Ruayat, we are told it's only those five. Those prophets are referred to as Ulil Azm. <coughs> Al-Azm is kind of difficult to translate to give the full meaning, so I decided to give you a few words here. If you put them all together, you get kind of the idea of the, why they're referred to as Al-Azm. What's Azm? So those who have Azm. So those who have resolve, firmness, determination, intent, courage, all of these can be proper translations for Azm. So those prophets, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says there are five of them who have reached this status, this level. Only five of them. In the Holy Quran, the reference is, so be patient, just as the Ulil Azm among the messengers were patient. 
And here the the wording is also precise. Ulil Azm were already messengers, they're not prophets. Okay, so now we start seeing a gradation. Okay, again, based on the theory, if it's valid, then this is where what the gradation is. We are told in the traditions that Ulil Azm are Prophet Nuh Prophet Ibrahim, Musa, Isa, and Muhammad Those are the five Ulil Azm. What's their distinction? What's the criteria? Is that they were sent with a scripture and a code of law. When what happens with these prophets, what happens with these messengers specifically, Ulil Azm is that once they are sent, it's not that there cannot be any other scriptures. Is that other prophets, even if they receive scripture, it falls under their scripture. It's an extension of their scripture. They are following the path every other prophet falls under the religion, the code of law, and the scripture of those five. So whatever happens between the time of Prophet Nuh and Prophet Ibrahim falls under the religion of Prophet Nuh. And between Prophet Ibrahim and Musa is Prophet Ibrahim's religion. And after Prophet Musa, all the prophets who came, that's why they all came with the religion of Prophet Musa. And many, many verses in the Quran are very clear on this. Okay, so I think that's clear. The last point here is, so what happens if you have more than one prophet? When you have more than one prophet at a given time, in the majority of cases, what you will see is that they were actually one of Ulil Azm. When the Quran mentions that there were many of them together, one of them was actually one of Ulil Azm, and you see that they are followers of Ulil Azm, even though they are themselves prophets, such as Lut with Ibrahim, such as Harun with Musa, such, okay, and so on and so forth. Yeah. There is no time for this, but uh, Musa and Khala, uh, we, I think, uh, because they were both prophets at the same time, uh, but uh, I guess Musa... The Qur'an does not say about Al-Khawar that was a prophet, okay. so that opens a whole discussion. Oh, okay. It just says, Abdan min ibadina. It does not say he was a prophet, or a messenger, or he was one of our, a servant from amongst our servants. Okay. That's it. So that opens the door to all the different commentaries. But, I mean, it's, it's one question, is, this one already, this, uh, uh, you mentioned Lut at, yes. uh, at Ibrahim, the, Ibrahim at the same time. Yeah, Ibrahim, I said. Ibrahim, at the same time. Yeah. Prophets to the same time. Yeah. But uh, who do we, like, what's it? Who did the last at a certain time. Yes. And then it expanded to everyone, and that's how he elevates in his rank. That's why in the Quran, the Holy Prophet was not sent to humanity at the beginning. His message was secret. And that's why the Quran says, That's the extent of the message of Islam when it started. The role of the Holy Prophet is to communicate Islam to those who are close to the Prophet from amongst his relatives. That's it. And then it started to expand. Okay. Let's just finish the remarks and then uh, just the remarks so people can pray. Yeah, there's four of them. Four remarks and then we'll finish them. And then we will conclude this topic entirely. The first one is all of prophethood, inshallah we have made that clear by now, has to be looked at as one chain. From Adam salam to Prophet Muhammad We cannot look at any of the prophets as a standalone prophet with a standalone mission or scripture or they are one chain. 
they each confirm what came before them and what will come after them. And we have to take them as a whole. And if there's a contradiction, then we have to resolve it because there cannot be a contradiction. They are one entity, one unit. That's one. And that includes if they say someone is a liar, then it's a liar to all of them. That goes without saying. Secondly, prophets never ask for any reward from their people. Every single prophet, and we have many, many of those instances in the Quran where he says, I'm not asking you for any reward for what I'm doing. I'm not trying to do this to gain money, fame, uh, a position, nothing. The only exception that we have to this is when the Holy Prophet asks when he says, the only reward I'm asking for you is the love of my relatives. But the rest of the verse, because someone might say, so why is it that the Holy Prophet is asking? The ending of that verse says, So I do not ask any reward for it except love of my relatives, and whomever performs a good deed, which is the love of my relatives, and whomever performs a good deed, we shall enhance for him his goodness. This is not a reward that goes back to the Prophet. He gets nothing out of you loving his relatives. Okay? So no one can spin that as though it became a personal gain or interest for the Holy Prophet himself. That's one. And in another verse that supports this, the Holy Prophet says, whatever reward I may have asked you, it is for you. My reward lies only with Allah. So when you put these together, the meaning becomes very clear. So with this, we answered an objection. Inshallah, we'll come back to it when we talk about Imamah. The third point, some prophets had many other functions. Okay, so they may have been a judge, they have been a military leader, they were a king, a ruler, so on and so forth. And the Quran talks about this. This opens the door to another discussion in every case. What falls specifically under that meaning or not? Given that we open the door to talking about messengers, Rasul, the Quran says, and we have never sent a messenger except that they be obeyed. Okay, which says that if you are a messenger, then you have to be obeyed in everything. A prophet will not order you outside of his area, but a messenger may order you in anything. Okay, so again, to support the theory that messengers are of a higher rank and of a broader mission. And the last point, at least we know that some jinn were aware of the scriptures and aware of the revelations and religions. Very clearly in the Quran, they say, and you have Surah Al-Ahqaf and Surah Al-Jinn, if you want to really understand the whole theory of jinn in the Quran, or the let's say the, the presentation, the, the image, the portrayal of jinn in the Quran, go back to Surah Al-Ahqaf and Surah their whole page and Surah Al-Jinn entirely, both pages. And you'll get the, a pretty good idea of the jinn. And clearly in there they say, they state that we were, we had, we just heard about a scripture now since or after the one that we knew about from Musa. Yeah. Which tells us that they were basically believers in the scripture and in the religion of Musa salam. And they had remained on that religion, those who were good because some of them are not good until the time the Qur'an was revealed and they heard the Holy Qur'an. And now they have a choice to make, whether they're going to be believers or not. With this, inshallah, we concluded this last topic. And all we have left is one more lesson related to general prophethood. And that is, generally speaking, the relationship between people, the masses, and prophets throughout history. How are they dealt with? How are they treated? And what does this say about everything and the role of prophethood and all of that and inshallah we'll continue uh, next time <laughs>